Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone, and today we're going to be talking about music listening technologies, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to kind of talk about the way that the technology you use shapes your experience of the music. And so in my mind, this is everything from, I say everything from, really, I'm, I'm talking about kind of, I think there's sort of three things in particular I want to talk about. So I want to talk about music listening, kind of like mediums, like devices. So, you know, iPods, turntables, yeah. computers, I want to talk about platforms, so, you know, Spotify, iTunes, and things like that. And then I want to talk about sort of the speaker systems you're listening to. So headphones, yeah. home stereo units, those sorts of things. I think all of those things, I want to explore how they affect the ways that we hear and interact with music. All right, so we're looking at a short, simple episode then. Every episode's a short, simple episode. <laughs> All right. So in that case, I, I think that sounds great. Before we get into those specifically, though, I think it might be good to sort of establish what I might refer to as the, quote, degenerate case, which is probably a term that's going to be misread. But that's just, you know, the very basic case in this sort of philosophical argument, the oldest musical listening technology in existence being in the room and just sort of what that does. And then that gives us a baseline to look at all of these other things through, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Well, and, and I think it's really interesting because it's definitely a thing where in the modern age, being in the room when somebody's playing music is, you know, experiencing music live is not seen as the default for hearing music. You know, that's yeah. that's kind of something special and different. Whereas, you know, for most of human history, it was not only the default, it was the only possible option you had to hear music. <laughs> yeah, and it has its own sort of characteristics that I think can get lost if we're sort of ignoring it. Considering like, instead of like the speaker, but considering the acoustics of the room, like this was a big thing in opera houses and whatnot, was they had to be built to carry a human voice to all of the seats. And that experience of being in that space has a certain, e even in like a very large symphony hall or whatever, it has a certain level of intimacy to it because you are, again, you're, you're in that space with the person and also this moment will never happen again. Any sort of recorded music technology, the moment is sort of crystallized. I mean, your exact moment listening to it will be different if you're, you know, driving your car versus, you know, sitting at home working on your computer or whatever. But the actual sound will be the same, whereas in a live performance, you are hearing... Unless the live performance is being recorded, but even then there's there's still differences between a recorded live performance and a, an experienced live performance. And, you know, if you're in that crowd, that exact set of things you're hearing, no one will ever hear again. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if you want to get really sort of, you know, cerebral about it, when you're in a crowd, you know, watching a symphony or something, what you're hearing is actually different than what somebody across the room experiencing the same concert is hearing just because, you know, yeah. acoustics bounce differently. Yeah, acoustics bounce differently. They're closer to different parts of the orchestra or the band or whatever you're listening to. There's, you know, you know, not, not that this is a huge problem, but there are delays in the speed of sound. Yes. Like even, even at a very basic level, 
you and someone on the exact opposite side of the room are hearing different instruments at different times relative to each other. Like, not hugely perceptible. But, you know, this is a... I forget which video it was, but Adam talked about this in a video where that's sort of part of the point of a conductor is that that way, because the speed of light is so much faster, even across an orchestra, trying to synchronize by audio alone is really difficult. And so if you have a large orchestra and you have a large seating area you are genuinely hearing sounds at different paces and different like levels, different mixes, different rhythmic positioning, metric positioning more accurately, micro-rhythmic if I want to yeah. be really accurate. But, you know, which I do, I always do. But you were getting a, yeah, a fundamentally unique experience in that case. And I think that one of the big things about kind of the, yeah, yeah the the degenerate case here is that when you are listening to music, live you are a more active participant in that music and yeah. just by virtue of i mean a lot of the time we could talk you know we could do a whole episode on you know how different venues shape the sound of stuff and the difference between seeing something in a concert hall and in a bar room or in a you know stage on a field in a festival there's a thousand different changes there but all of these generally if you're you know in a place experiencing music live a lot of the time, a lot of your attention is directed toward the music, toward the performance. Again, not yeah. always. Sometimes there's stuff that's meant to be background music, but more often than not, your attention is directed towards the performance and you are an active, you're in active conversation with the performers. The performers are feeding off what's happening in the room um, and are aware yeah. of you in the room. And because of that, you're, you know, it's hard to say to what degree, but you are actively changing what is happening with the sound that you're hearing. Yeah, I think that's that's a fundamental difference between being in the room and most of the other technologies we're going to talk about is that, you know, you are engaging with the band. The band is potentially responding, not necessarily to you specifically, but to the audience. And the audience around you is responding to that. Uh, and so their experience has changed by you being there and also, like, to get really technical, and this is, again, at one of those cases where, like, hard to argue that this is a huge, meaningful factor, but you being there physically changes yes. the sound for everyone else because your body absorbs some of the sound waves. Yes. And they would get a slightly different acoustic space, a slightly different timbre if you weren't there. And again, that's a largely minuscule effect at, like, the level of one single human body. But it is like a real factor when you scale up to very large spaces. Yeah. I, I mean, if you've ever been in, you know, if you've ever been in a big kind of like, you know, concert hall or stadium or something like that, when people are doing sound check and it's empty, it sounds very yeah. different than when there's, you know, a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand people in there naturally, right? Like th there is. Yeah. There is a very yeah. real, and yeah, no one person is going to make that much of a difference, but a crowd is made up of a bunch of single people. Quite a few people. This is even just looking at in sort of the classical music case of like everyone sits there silently and listens. But at a lot of shows, at a lot of music performances, historically even, the audience is not silent. Yeah. And either they're dancing and there's those sounds associated with it, or they're cheering or they're talking, and that will again change the experience. And and I think in a lot of ways, sort of one of the things that I'm interested in exploring in this episode is the ways that 
the more convenient methods we have of hearing music, the more we as music listeners have become detached from the music that we hear and become separate hmm. from the music that we hear. Because like I would say, you know, to, to leap kind of into the technology yeah. thing, when you listen to something with, say, a vinyl record, there is a more active participation. It's not the same kind of active participation as being in the room with music, but just the act of placing a record on a turntable, you know, dropping the needle. And I, yeah. I mean, the biggest kind of defining feature of the record is the flip. And I want to talk about that later and kind of what yeah. that does for the experience. But just just the act of physically putting a record onto a turntable, I personally think is more involved and more active than scrolling on your phone or than clicking, or even it's slightly more active than putting a CD in and pressing play because you are kind of, I, I think, you know, this is where we get really into kind of like media theory and stuff like that, but you are physically yeah. interacting with an object that, a record is a physical representation of sound waves. It's a direct, you know, one-to-one. Yeah. -one. The grooves are the sound waves, whereas in digital listening technologies, there's another step removed where you're interacting, you're not interacting with any actual kind of physical representation of the sound. You're interacting with a binary code that is telling how to, you know, represent the sound. Well, I mean... I would push back a little bit on that in that that binary is physically encoded. But I think that for me, a significant portion of that is that when you put a record on like a record player and you you can do it wrong. Yes. Like it's it's very hard for me to play an MP3 incorrectly in a way that results in a like not not just like hearing I can I've had this happen where I've started to play like a playlist that I have on my like Apple music or whatever. And I meant to play it in order, but I accidentally had shuffle on and I suppose that's doing it wrong. But yeah. like, you know, on, on a record, there is like, it's, it's not like a high skill thing or anything, but you are physically manipulating the mechanism and therefore you, your interaction with it becomes a part of the result. And and you are, maybe this is kind of what I'm getting at, is you are, like, basically, when you're looking at where to drop the needle on a record, especially if you're trying to drop it on a specific song, um, rather than just, like, the whole side, but even with the whole side, yeah. you are physically looking at a piece of media that has the music encoded in it, and you are deciding where to place the needle on that physical media, whereas... When you're engaging yeah. with uh, digital, you're telling a program to get this file, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, there's less control. I mean, like, famously, I, I say famously, this is maybe not a thing that people outside of music colleges would know about. Uh, but people inside who have been to music colleges will be very familiar with the idea of a needle drop test. Uh, which is a thing that happens generally in like music history classes. They'll get a record of a particular piece and they will just drop the needle on a random point on the record, play and be like, identify this piece. Tell me like what this is, who wrote it, uh, when, whatever, whatever the specific questions are. 
but you just pick a, you can literally physically pick a random point on the thing by dropping the needle at a random position. When I did this in my music history class, they didn't have a record player available. And so they just, they did it with MP3s, which meant that they could only do the beginnings of songs effectively. I mean, they, they could click at a random point, but they didn't. Yeah. That that wasn't what they did. And so it was was a different sort of interaction. We, you know, we, we still had to like know the pieces, but it is different because you can't just walk over, pick up the thing and drop it randomly. You have to sort of scroll and drag, which, you know, again, if they wanted to, they probably could have done that, but they didn't because it's more complicated. I think this is another thing too that, you know, where you look at records and, you know, I think this is something something records have in common with iPods that iPods do not have in common with, you know, streaming on a phone or a computer is the yeah. entire function of a vinyl record and a turntable is to play music. That is the function of the object that you are working with, right? I mean, you can also, you can do yeah. other things with it. You can make music with it, you know, with turntables yeah. and, and stuff like that. But yeah, you can play Frisbee with it. <laughs> exactly. You can hang them on walls. Um, but it's entirely designed to yeah. be a vessel for music, which an iPod or an MP3 player is the same, even though it's kind of interacting in a different way. Yeah. Its entire job is to have you interact with music. But when you move yeah. kind of up a level from iPods and MP3 players into digital music libraries and into phones, you know, obviously the design of phones is, you know, and especially the design of streaming UIs is heavily influenced by iPods and MP3 players. But the fact of the matter is that you are using an app on a device that is designed not exclusively for music. It's designed for all these other things. And I want to be clear here, you know, I, I don't think I need to, th to say this to all of you guys, but as I'm talking about these different mediums, I'm not saying vinyl or live music is better or, you know, something is superior because of this. It's just yeah. interesting to me to explore how these changes, like, you know, physically shift the ways that we engage with music. Yeah, one one thing that I want to spin off of there uh, is that uh, you talked about how technologies for listening to music have gotten more convenient. And one thing that I think is important to highlight there is that by becoming more convenient, they've also in many ways become less flexible, right? Like you look at something like the use of turntables in hip hop to create loops. And that's something that, you know, you can do in like dedicated audio engineering software these days in like Logic or Pro Tools or whatever you're using. But like, you can't do that on Spotify very effectively because they have so... But when you build really convenient music listening technologies, in order for something to be convenient, you have to build in assumptions about how people are going to use it. And that's going to make doing things other than that approach more difficult. And so you have, it's, it's not that you have less control. I mean, it is that you have less control. You know what? I'll own that. It's about the, it's that you have less control. I'm, it's just not necessarily a good or bad thing, but it means that the more present the technology is, in many ways, the more advanced the technology is, the more you are interacting with someone else's vision of how you should listen to music instead of making those decisions yourself. Well, and when you look at, you know, kind of like like we said, the base case for our technology, 
it's instruments and instruments yeah. are incredibly flexible, right? They are yeah. so, so flexible in ways that you can yeah. use them to make sounds, you know. I mean, not physically flexible necessarily. Depends like, on Don't the bend instrument. your guitars, but <laughs> bend your strings, bend your strings. I think that really gets at something, which is that like, I think all of the convenience is geared towards a more passive listening experience because of this because it's so yeah. easy it, you're not really your mind isn't really focusing on what's physically going on as you're listening to this music i don't think this means you can't you know really yeah. mindfully put on a song on spotify and really really get into it but i think that these platforms are kind of designed for you not to be that mindful about music, especially yeah. when we really get into the, um, you know, get into streaming platforms and stuff like that, especially stuff that's algorithmically curated. It's designed to have you not thinking about music and just constantly having this flow of music coming to you. Whereas when you put a record on, you know, or even when you scroll through an iPod, personally, I loved, I love iPods. I don't use them anymore, but seminal yeah. technology for me. But there's so much mindfulness to it because of the limitations of the UI, because you need to use that scroll wheel to scroll through. You're really choosing what you're putting on. Same with a record. I mean, even more so with a record, you're physically flipping through a record collection. And that's a very mindful, present act that I think makes you more yeah. cognizant of what's going to happen. What am I, you know, and it, it also it also makes you more creative with what you're picking because you've got these limitations. So you're like, oh, you know, I've got some friends over for a dinner party and I'm spinning records. I've got to look and be like, OK, well, which of my records is good dinner party music? Whereas if I've got friends over for a dinner party, I can just open a Spotify playlist, throw on dinner party music and be happy. Right. Like that's that's kind of. That's it. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a more passive experience. I think I would like to push back a little bit on the framing of that without pushing back on the actual idea. Yeah. How I would describe it is that things like Spotify, Pandora, even Apple Music, they don't encourage you to engage very deeply. That doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean that you can't have just as meaningful an experience with those mediums as you could with a vinyl record. But it means that that's not the set of assumptions that the tool was built under. I agree that they don't encourage you. I think some of these uh, platforms, especially something like Spotify, actively discourages you because what Spotify, Spotify is kind of incentivized to create a world where the place you go for music is Spotify and Spotify yeah. is the place that shows you new music, that tells you what to play the entire, and when I say Spotify, I also mean Tidal, I also mean Apple yeah. Music. Yeah. Any any of these streaming services are incentivized to have you want to come to them for all of your music listening habits. They want you to come to them yeah. and they don't, they, they, they don't want you to take as much of an active role in their listening. And again, that doesn't mean you can't. Like they clearly it's enabled for people to do that, but their average use case, what Spotify wants uh, is people coming to curated playlists that they create because then Spotify, the platform has value. Yeah, I mean, that 
And also, I think a really important distinction between platforms like Spotify, Tidal, Pandora, and a lot of older forms of listening to music like vinyl or CDs is that albums have an end. Yes. Like you listen to roughly an hour of music usually, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Maybe it's like a double album where there's like two hours. I don't know. But like there's an end point. Very specifically on vinyl, there's an end point and there's also a break every 20 minutes. Yeah. No matter what, no matter how long the album, you know, yeah. you can get these books of like Tchaikovsky's symphonies that are like three hours long. They're still flipping the record every 20 minutes. Yeah. You're still making a decision to keep listening. Yeah. And that's that's a thing. And you and I both work on YouTube. We both know that like a social media platform, streaming platforms, they hate it when you have a chance to when you have a chance to think about whether you want to keep going. Yes. A hundred percent. Because then you leave. Then you might choose no. Whereas if they can just not give you that opportunity and just get you to, you know, the Netflix model of like ending the show beef on a cliffhanger that like really isn't a coherent place to end the episode. But you're like, okay, I'll just start watching the next episode to see how this plot line resolves. And then you're in the next episode, so you might as well finish it. There's no clear point where you're supposed to be like, okay, I'm done. Whereas honest, and again, this isn't all old music listening technologies, right? Uh, yeah. like you look at Spotify, you look at Tidal, they're basically an evolved version of the radio. But I mean, the radio even, it has ads. And that's also a point where you are thinking like, do I want to keep listening to this? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say is that like, like the these platforms are 100% the continuation of radio where it's trying to keep you in and yeah. trying to show you this stuff. You come to the radio station because they know what music you like. That's the that's the whole value yeah. prop. And that's very much what these algorithms, the promise of these algorithms is, we know what music you want to hear better than you know what music you want to hear. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of a lot of that. And I think, like personally, i'm I'm very attached to the idea of curation. Like, yes, I one of those, weirdos who still uses the YouTube subscription feed. Yep. And still watches all the videos that show up in my subscription feed, which is extremely not how they want you to use that platform. They are so mad that they can't get rid of the subscription feed. They would love to do that. But, you know, that that way I am able to control what I want to watch and but when I've caught up, I'm done. And I will either, you know, go watch other things that I'm sort of watching through or I'll go do something else. And that sort of is the big thing that they don't want you to lose, that they don't want to happen is for you to think about going somewhere else. And that means they can't be set up to actively encourage really deep listening because really deep listening is exhausting. Yes. Like it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of attention. It's like you can't do that. From, I, I say you can't. Most people don't want to do that for like, five hours. Whereas if I can just put on a, like Spotify, they set it to shuffle similar songs to an artist I like, and then put that on in the background while I go do my work, I can do that for five hours. That's fine. And so that becomes the incentive that they want you to do, which doesn't mean it's how you have to engage with the platform, but it does mean it's how the architecture of the platform is set up. And I think, you know, kind of the very idea of background music, I'm sure there is kind of, you know, yeah. soft rock radio is often kind of used as background music. And, you know, 
elevator music has existed for a long time. But I was reading, yeah. you know, it's really interesting kind of Brian Eno talking about ambient music is really interesting to me because he, you know, Music for Airports is one of the, you know, seminal ambient music yeah. albums. But he talks very much about how it's music that, you know, you're meant to engage with kind of as much or as little as you want. But I think one of the things that yeah. is happening in music with the rise of these platforms and also things, uh, I, I talk about this in this month's news newsletter a little, but things like, you know, like the lo-fi beats to study to and stuff like this is there's yeah. this increase in music that is kind of not meant to be actively listened to. Music that exists yeah. solely, you know, to be in the background and give you a little bit of stimulus while you're doing this thing or another. And, you know, I, I kind of have mixed feelings with, of about it because I don't fundamentally think there's anybody wrong with creating any kind of music, you know? I really respect people's, you know, ability to make whatever they want. But I also feel that, you know, because all of these platforms that we're listening to now are really kind of streamlining for that sort of passive background listening. These platforms really leave out things that require intense active listening, and it makes it a lot harder to engage with those things. You know, there's a reason why, like, you know, experimental music, you know, stuff like Steve Reich or Ornette yeah. Coleman or stuff like that, on a platform, you're, you know, never going to, you're, you, you know, when each stream makes up a fraction of a cent, you know, an artist who does friendly, you know, pop stuff you can play on repeat can barely make money. Someone like that, a musician like that is never going to have any hope. Whereas like I have a vinyl record of Ornette Coleman's free jazz. I've listened to that record maybe twice in my life because it is a cacophony. It is a an assault on the senses to listen to. But when I listen, my entire direction has been focused towards this. And it's an album that I'm happy that I own, even if I almost never listen to it, because putting on this record and sitting down for 20 minutes of this, you're, you're kind of making a deal with yourself when you put it on uh, in a yeah. way that you're not with Spotify. Like, Obviously, you can always lift the needle and take it off, but that's that's more of there's more effort that it takes to do that. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is sort of the experience that I would draw from in that sort of space is philosophy of the world, which yes. is yeah. a phenomenal album. This is uh, the Shags uh, for anyone who hasn't heard me talk about the Shags before. Absolute mess but a phenomenal album. I really like it. Uh, I have had experiences where like I have tried to take individual songs off of philosophy of the world and like listen to those or like put those on playlists and they just never work. Yeah. Like it always, it always feels like unpleasant and weird, but if I put on the entire album front to back, I can immerse myself in that work of art for long enough and thoroughly enough to find it meaningful. Yeah, Trout Mask Replica is very similar. And again, yeah. in that very same kind of milieu. Yeah, but like one, one thing that like, I, I guess just to put my own cards on the table here, because uh, it sounds, you, you listen to a lot of vinyl, I don't. Yeah. Uh, most of my music listening is on YouTube. 
but I will almost always put on full albums. Yeah. And occasionally I will stop. Like if I'm like partway through and it's just like, this is doing nothing for me. I'm bored or whatever. But more, most of the time, once I put on an album, I am committing to myself. My point is sort of that that's a thing you can do artificially as well. It's just, you have to be actively committed to yes. that. And again, platforms like YouTube, like like Spotify does not want you to keep listening to a thing you don't like, because yeah. then you will, by the time it's done, you will want to leave. You will not want to listen to another thing. Whereas if you put on something nice, you might want to. And I think listening to things you don't like is such a is such an important part of being, you know, expanding your horizons and, you know, just growing as a music listener. Yeah, I had this experience a while back now uh, where I'd been hearing about Death Grips for a while. I hadn't listened to them. And like ex-military just popped up on my recommendations. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll check this out. I've heard good things about this band. And I listened to it and I just, I didn't get it. And it wasn't working for me. And I just, I listened to the whole thing anyway. And then I gave it about a month or two and it popped up in my recommendations again. And I was like, sure, let's listen to this again. See if maybe, and the, the second time it, it was great. And yeah. having not necessarily the incentive, but the desire at least to give things the space they need to convince you that they're good. Especially like I, I found this a lot with things where I, I, I have a lot of hype. I've heard a lot of people whose opinions I really respect me like this is an amazing album. And I will go in with just utterly impossible expectations. Yeah. And I will just I will listen to it and be like, this is fine, I guess, but I, I don't get the hype. And then I'll but like maybe something in it will grab me and I'll be like, all right, that that was pretty cool. I'll give you that. And so a little bit later, I'll come back with my lowered expectations and then be blown away. I think it's interesting, too, because that that brings me to something else I wanted to talk about with kind of when you're listening to, you know, streaming mediums, you're not incentivized. You, you know, the, the barrier to entry to finding something is so low, which in a lot of ways is really wonderful. Yeah. But it also means that, you know, there's very low cost to, you know, stopping. Whereas if you're, you know, buying yeah. a vinyl or also even just like buying an album off iTunes or buying a CD or something like that, if somebody's recommended this album to you and you, you know, haven't been able to see it uh, and then find it, you know, in, in your CD store after a couple months, find it and pick it up and go, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to give this a shot. Like my buddy said, it was really great. You're going to be a lot, a lot more willing to spend your time with that. Whereas if somebody recommends something to you and you're like, oh, yeah, sure, I'm not doing anything right now. I'll throw it on. And, you know, you listen to the first song and a half and you're like, eh, doesn't do much for me then you might not ever return to that. And, you know, I often find myself in situations where, like, as, as I'm sure you are too, like, I'm constantly getting yeah. albums recommended to me. And, you know, I think, oh, yeah. like, listening on streaming services, it's so easy just to put an album on and listen to a song or two and be like, well, you know, I'm not really feeling this right now. And sometimes I'll come back to them, but often I won't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that, like, I, I think this was sort of part of what you were saying, but I just sort of want to draw it out and highlight it specifically, is that like if you are paying on a per-music basis, then you have much more incentive yeah. to optimize your use of each piece of music you purchase. And they, I, I think there's two sides to that, right? Because I think that 
on the one hand, yes, if I buy a CD that I'm not sure of, I'm going to give it more time because I spent like 10 bucks on it and getting a different CD would cost me another 10 bucks than I would if I just put it on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. But on the other hand, if I'm looking at a CD that I'm not sure of, yeah, I also just might not pay 10 bucks for it. Yeah. Whereas it costs me nothing to check it out on YouTube and see if maybe there's something cool on it. Uh, and I found quite a few really interesting bands that way, bands and artists and whatnot. And like that way, so it's sort of, it's a trade-off ultimately. And it's, it's the, again, this comes back to like a thing where I do want to reiterate a thing you said earlier, which is that I am not saying that any of this is good or bad. I am saying that there are differences. And I think that's what you're saying yeah. as well. But like, I, I do want to highlight some of the you know positive aspects of listening to music on something like Spotify or YouTube as well, because I think there are some. To be clear, I, I talk a lot about vinyl. On an average basis, I usually listen to, I would say I'd probably listen to two thirds of my music on streaming. The fact of the matter is it's yeah. just, it's a very convenient way to listen to music and there are a lot of benefits to it. It's just, I think when we, I think I've, I've just been trying to be more mindful of my listening music habits and trying to figure out, you know, what is actually happening in my head when I'm listening on vinyl versus when I'm listening on, you know, streaming or on YouTube yeah. or on the radio, even to kind of get to the level of listening to the exact same album on vinyl, on CD, on an iPod and on a streaming service is four different experiences. You know, they it can be a very similar yeah. experience, but the the biggest the biggest kind of ultimate example of this that I mentioned earlier with vinyl is the flip and albums are sequenced around an album flip. The the best example of this there's yeah. there's a whole lot, but the best example of this for me is always Abbey Road where the first side of Abbey Road ends on I Want You, which has this like real kind of like tense build up and then just cuts out. And then, you know, yeah. you open on Here Comes the Sun, one of the most just, you know, biggest pieces of sheer euphoria ever recorded. But what happens when you listen to that without the record flip, that's designed for this for I want you to cut and you to kind of have this moment to breathe as you're, you know, standing up and flipping the record over in however much time you want. But when you listen on YouTube or on a streaming service, the next song just comes and it's incredibly, yeah. incredibly jarring. It's a really, really like kind of ugly transition and you know there's there's stuff to be found in ugly stuff in music all the time but it's something that for me it's always like really really jarring when i listen to that album off of vinyl because there isn't that breath moment and uh, you know a lot of stuff yeah in it basically anything almost anything kind of recorded between i'm gonna say like 1963 or 64 and kind of you know the mid 80s is sort of designed with the record flip in mind one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I think an another aspect of that as well, um, in terms of the difference between them that you were mentioning earlier is just the actual speakers. Yes. Especially like if you're using a record player, then that, that has built in sounds that are associated with that specific machine, not sounds, built in speakers. You know, if you're listening 
on to Spotify. I mean, that, that could be any number of things. You could have really high fidelity headphones. You could be listening on laptop speakers. You could be listening on your phone speakers. Well, and turntables, you can have any array of sort of setups too. True. Something that I really wanted to talk about that that brings me to is the difference between listening on speakers and listening on headphones is huge. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah. if anything is mixed stereo. You know, you have a lot of these things uh, from the 60s and the 70s especially, that are mixed stereo. So a lot of these stereo mixes, the thing with, you know, when you listen to these stereo mixes on headphones is you're not getting the bleed. You know, the, and, you know, sometimes the yeah. things are mixed to make up for this. But when, as stereo is designed, you're you're hearing the left channel and the right channel at the same time, bleeding into each other, and it creates this really nice kind of holistic feel, and it can be used to really separate stuff out in the mix. But, you know, like anyone who's ever, I, I think my my life experience was always listening to Bohemian Rhapsody with one headphone in as a kid and discovering kind of the concept of stereo and discovering that that was how <laughs> things even worked, which was a cool experience. Um, and, you know, it's very fun to be able to, like, isolate stereo channels and only listen to the left channel or only the right channel. It can, yeah. it can teach you a lot about the way that a song is made. But ultimately, if you're listening to something mixed stereo in headphones, it's going to sound often different than, you know, it was meant to. Unless, of course, it's yeah. something more modern that's designed to be listened to on headphones. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of, it was a while, I forget which song, but it was one of the songs I was doing a video about, and I was transcribing it, uh, and I, I had thought I had all the things transcribed, and then I went and listened to it again, and I heard a completely new part. Did I just miss <laughs> this? What's going on? Uh, and I went and, like, worked that out and figured, and... Then I went and listened to it like a different version. Eventually, what I realized was that the right speaker on my headphone was intermittently cutting out. And this part <laughs> was just panned really hard to the right. And so it, it wasn't that the speaker was cutting out. It was something with the wire where sometimes it was flipping to a mono of the left side track. Okay, yeah. And so it was coming from both sides. But like sometimes it just wasn't playing the right side. And this is how I found out that my headphones were breaking. Uh, was there was this this part that I was like, "Where did this come? How did I miss this?" It seems very obvious in retrospect. And I went and listened to other versions, and I was like, "Okay, I hear it." But sometimes when I would look it up, like on other times to double check or whatever, it wasn't there anymore. And I was like, "How how did I lose it now? What's going on?" And it just it turns out that it was a panning thing. It was just my headphones were breaking, and it was panned weird. And that's a perfect example of how the technology you listen with can give you a fundamentally yeah. different experience. You know, if, if your speakers aren't set up properly, it can be yeah. fundamentally different too. You know, even even it's kind of often negligible, but you know, if you if you set up speakers and accidentally plugged the left channel in, you know, put the speaker plugged into the left channel to the right side, that would be something different, right? Like things things change yeah. the technology is constantly playing in and i know i've had i've had enough cheap headphones that i've fidgeted with enough where you know the stereo comes in and out and stuff like that and yeah that's something that that very much changes it yeah and it speaks to i think what we were talking about earlier where like speakers interact with the shape of the space yes right like speakers in my bedroom 
are probably going to sound different than those same speakers playing that same song in your bedroom. Yeah. Because your bedroom is probably shaped slightly different than mine. I'm assuming. Maybe we have identical bedrooms. I can't confirm that. But it seems relatively unlikely. Certainly, it would sound different in my bedroom than it does in, say, my bathroom, because that has a lot more hard surfaces. The acoustics are very different. And so, like, having, whereas headphones don't, headphones yeah. create their own acoustic space, especially over ears, like, less so with, like, like in ears or whatever they're called. Is it in ears? Yeah. You know, the, the, I don't know. Yeah, I, everyone knows. Type we things. know. Yeah, you you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. But yeah, o- over ear ones certainly, which is what I use because I like them better. Like they they create very much their own acoustic space that is largely unaffected, and in, in many cases, especially with noise canceling headphones, actively removing yeah. any outside concerns. And so, part of the thing, like you go back before that was really the norm, and especially like you go back to like you were saying stuff that's set up with like the assumption that you will get like panned bleed and stuff like that, all of that sort of fundamentally just is not built for a world in which there is no outside space. Yeah. And yet we can do that. Well, and I think that, you know, it, it even gets down to different sort of kinds of music will kind of lend themselves to different you know, sorts of listening too. I mean, something that I've found yeah. is, and it's it's hard to tell whether this is because my tastes have upgraded or my stereo system has upgraded or what, but, you know, I've I've been steadily upgrading my stereo system and a year or two ago, I got like a really nice sound bar and I've been listening to a ton of um, like 70s soul, which is some of the most like lush, meticulously produced stuff. And I don't I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm enjoying that music more because that's music really designed stuff made in the late 70s. Soul, a lot of the kind of like prog rock and the sort of like like Fleetwood Mac kind of rock stuff like that stuff is very kind of meticulously, yeah. you know, assembled for analog hi-fi systems. And it sounds so good and so rich on those and you know i yeah. feel like i appreciate i appreciate it more listening on that but you know i'll still listen to you know pop punk or something like that on that but for me listening to pop punk on a hi-fi system listening to any punk on a hi-fi system it's not that it's bad it's still good but the difference be- between listening on a hi-fi system and listening on like you know the laptop speakers that i grew up listening to punk on it's yeah. <laughs> it's more negligible, right? Just because of the sound yeah. of this. But you know, listening if you put on if you put on inner visions on laptop speakers and then put on inner visions on a nice home stereo, the difference is gonna blow you away. You're gonna hear so much more in the kind of rich timbres. You'll hear, I mean, obviously a lot of things, you'll hear the bass a lot better, you'll hear the yep. the vocal notes a lot better. This doesn't mean that that's the only way you can enjoy it. It just means that these speaker systems really you do they they do change a lot uh what what you're listening. Oh yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah, my my dad has a story that uh he likes to tell uh that I will do my best not to butcher, but you know, he butchers it half the time anyway. I love you dad. Basically, when he went to, off to college, which would have been the late 70s, he decided he was going to invest in a really nice sound system. And he he was like 
that that was worth it to him to have really, really good audio for listening to the music that he loved. And what he found was, you know, it made it better. But like the most noticeable result was that like once he got used to that, if he ever went to over to yeah. any of his friends' houses who had like cheap audio, cheap stereo systems, the, listening to music there just felt so much worse. I Which, I feel that is, in a is, big is, way. Yeah, yeah. I thought you might. I thought you might relate to that. Growing up as a kid, like like growing up through high school and like a lot of university, I listened. I listened on headphones, and you know, I had decent headphones. And yeah. but really, I listened a lot on just laptop speakers. You know, which are not yeah good speakers, and not even like like on no. smaller laptop they, speakers. Certainly not when we were in high school. Yeah, exactly. Like, and and every now and then, you know, I'll like. I'll, I'll put a song on on my laptop speakers just because I haven't like hooked up to my Bluetooth and everything. And I'll just put it on and be like, no, I can't. I physically can't listen yeah, like, to oh, this. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's I think it's one of those things where I was like I was thinking earlier when I was talking about, you know, headphones and how having that creating your own acoustic space changes things. And I think that, you know, if you go back, headphones are not like a super new technology, but Headphones, headphone quality has improved so much yes. over the course of our lifetime, right? Like, I remember what headphones sounded like when I was 10. And, like, even crappy Bluetooth head, like, like headphones these days are often better than that. Yeah. Like, I'm often blown away by, like, the quality of the speakers on, like, an iPhone, uh, which, again, is not is still nothing compared to like actual like high by like really good like industry grade speakers right yeah but i think like the baseline level of audio technology has come so far that's not to say that it now perfectly replicates being in a space or like that that's never going to happen for reasons that have nothing well, to do with acoustic quality and i also think that like the idea that music is you know, music isn't even the goals of production are seldom to replicate being in the room. They're, you know, kind of yeah. to create a a hyper reality of being in the room. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it can control space in ways that you can't do physically. Yeah. yeah. Dating back to like, even you look at like you look at like Frank Sinatra and the reality with Sinatra, so many of his recordings probably sound better than if you heard Sinatra sing live just because he's working yeah. in this perfect studio space where his vocals are really boosted in the mix. You know, he, his vocals are the highlight and you can really hear them and, you know, everything brings it up. Whereas it's a lot harder to get that when you're singing on a stage in front of an orchestra, yeah. right? A lot of the time, the the goals yeah. of music are uh, of recording are kind of to create... Yeah, to create a hyper reality, to create a world that's better than that that sounds better than it would have if you were even if you were in the room, you know, while they were were recording. Like there's a reason mixer mixers exist, right? Yeah. No, like I mean, there are live mixing boards as well that is also a yeah. part of being in the room. Uh, yes. But I I was talking to a friend uh who is super into musical theater. They were pointing out something that I hadn't really thought about, but like it is obvious in retrospect, but hadn't really occurred to me is that like when you're in like musical theater, like when you think about vocals in a lot of pop tracks or whatever, you have lead vocals and then you have background vocals and you can delineate those very easily with the mix. 
and you can control those independently when like instantaneously if you're doing it for like a, a record or whatever because you can just pro um, automate or whatever but in musical theater everyone's just singing as loud as they can all the time it's a fundamentally different space because you can't have that sort of fine-grained technical control because you know someone else might might be singing the background part but might have to step forward to sing a lead part or whatever and so you just have all of these volumes very flat which is a very specific experience of musical theater as opposed to you know if, if you go to like a rock show like they'll have background singers and again similarly their mics will just be mixed lower yeah. Because they're always going to be the background. You don't have to worry about it. And so it's just, it's a different interaction with the technology because it's a different medium that needs different things from it. And so, again, this this comes down to like how original cast recordings and whatnot are mixed. Like you have to, if you want it to sound like an actual Broadway show or West End show or musical theater show in general there are things you have to think about in terms of what that would be like live and how to get that across in ways that you really don't for other types of music. That's really cool. And of course, the trade-off of that is you know, when you're in that space, because there's no clear delineation, which, you know, that delineation serves a very specific purpose. And if you don't have it, then things do get kind of muddy. And But that's sort of part of, part of the point and part of the experience and the art is sort of crafted around that in ways that are limited, but also utilizing, I guess, is the word I want to use, utilizing the technology because that's that's what you have and that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, that, that reminds me of, I recently watched Vox recently did a video about cinema audio mixing and talked about how like a lot of, uh, a lot of people have found like on streaming, a lot of stuff is really muddy and people need subtitles. And one of the big reasons for that is because all this stuff is, you know, the the original mix is for these state of the art, like like theater sound systems where it's state of the yeah. art surround sound. And, you know, they'll try to remix it for home. But ultimately, a lot of the stuff, you know, you can only go so far creating yeah. something that is going to sound decent on you know, any sort of speaker system. So a lot of the time yeah. what ends up happening is stuff gets really muddied because not everybody's listening on full Dolby Atmos or, you know, whatever the whatever the most yeah. sophisticated hi-fi one yeah. is right now. It's yeah, it's probably still that one. But no, like yeah. I, I mean this is like I took some like audio engineering classes in college, mostly the the required one. I never got super into that track. I should have. I wish I had, but like I didn't. But like one thing that I specifically remember every audio engineering teacher that I ever interacted with saying was like, you don't just mix these on your studio headphones or your studio speakers. Like one once you think you have something good, you take it, you put it on a like MP3 player or a CD or whatever, and you listen to it in your car on the freeway. And you're like, is this still good? Do I still like this? Like, are there things I'm hearing in this that I wasn't hearing there or things that I'm losing in this that I want to make sure I'm hearing? And because, especially when you're dealing with speakers, you are interacting with someone else's audio space. Like, even setting aside whether the speakers themselves are good, like, I might not have good acoustic dampening or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it may be more echoey than you had thought because my room has more hard surfaces. Engaging with the work when you're mixing it in all of these different environments 
from the get-go and doing that along the way across the process instead of just trying to do everything on these really perfect speakers and then trying to adapt it afterwards has been like industry standard advice for decades. Yeah. But of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to do it. Well, it's more expensive to do that is the problem, you know? Like yeah, it, no, it's more it's more work. It requires someone with like more technical expertise and so it not only is it more time but also like higher paid time probably to get people who can do that well. What I think is really interesting and I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, I'm really interested in the production of drill music because drill music is produced for cell phone speakers and for laptop speakers, yeah. right? Like drill music is produced. Uh, it's got these kind of like really like blown out sounds and it really leans into that because it's produced for audiences that are, uh, you know, a lot of the original intended audience for drill tends to be lower class kids where phones are really the only way that they listen to music. Listening to yeah. drill on a hi-fi audio system will be a kind of, weird experience, just like, you know, if you listen to Steely Dan on your cell phone speakers, please don't ever listen the to Steely Dan on your cell Dan. phone speakers. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the best way. Honestly, though, like, I think a lot of the stuff with this hi-fi stuff, it's easy to come off as, you know, elitist, and it's very easy to, yeah. you know, say, oh, well, just go get a hi-fi sound system. I recognize that hi-fi sound systems are very complex, expensive things. I just want to, again, make people more conscious of how what they're listening on affects. And that doesn't mean you need to listen yeah. to different mediums. I mean, if you can afford it and you're interested, I would recommend listening on different things. I have, in my regular listening, I have... Two different sets of headphones I use. I have over-ear headphones and I have AirPods that I'll use for, you know, different things. I have a, a Bose soundbar that's really nice. That's like my kind of nice hi-fi sound system. I have a turntable that I'll listen to that's on a different speaker setup. And I have a little Bluetooth speaker that, you know, I'll bring, you know, I can take that guy to the park or, you know, put him on when I'm in the shower yeah. or something like that. And all of those, I listen to different music on those. I get a different experience out of those. So just kind of be curious about what you have handy. And, you know, it, it's not necessarily an evaluation of listening to music this way or this way is ultimate and superior. But I think if you're aware of, you know, the biases built into the systems you're using, whether that's recommendations bias, like we talked about with Spotify, whether that's kind of the yeah. mastering and acoustic bias, whether that's the biases of, you know, physical technology, I just think it, it'll enrich your musical experience if you're really thinking about how that's impacting what's going into your ears. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially when it comes to audio, like, thinking about it more, I think that it's, God, I use the word think so many times there. It's fine. Um, but, like, because there are objective aspects of audio, it becomes very tempting to talk about better audio. Yes. And, like, there are ways in which that's true. There are ways in which a high-fidelity system with, like, really crisp sounds and whatever. It is technically better audio, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like 
listening to something on your phone speakers, especially Steely Dan, the optimal music for listening to on phone <laughs> speakers, it doesn't mean that's worse audio in any way except for that technical way. And yeah. it sort of, but it it does mean that it's different audio. It does mean that your experience is different because of the medium, because, you know, mediums change experiences. That's just what mediums are. And like, like for me, like I know something that, like listening to music as a high schooler on a laptop on shitty laptop speakers in my room, the speakers were not good, but the value and the experience of being a high schooler and being able to choose yeah. what music I listened to in my room whenever I wanted that opened the doors to my passion for music. You know, that, that was like, yeah. like, and that's something enabled by the technology. That's something that, you know, yeah, it's it's a lot harder to do if you need to have records and you know you're playing stuff loudly and stuff like that like be being able to listen on a crappy pair of quiet headphones is a, a lot of a lot of what allowed me to kind of step out and listen to my own music and and by the same measure you know the the times when I most often listen to records are when I have friends over. I love having friends over and, you know, share like borrowing records from each other, sharing records, spinning each other's records, stuff like that. And it has nothing to do with the fidelity. It, it has nothing to do with, you know, yeah. the sound space, the sequencing of the album. It's just it's fun to have a friend flip through your records and pull something out. And that changes the experience in, you know, these kinds of ways are, might seem less tangible, but they're, they're no less important. Like th that really does yeah. impact the mindset you're going into when you, when you listen to songs. I think I mentioned this on the podcast, some other episode, I forget why, but uh, I have a friend locally who we've just started exchanging mix CDs Yes. Just like passing things back and forth. Just like, hey, here's, and part of it is like, here's some songs I think you'd like. If that was all it was, I could just make a YouTube playlist and send them yeah. a link. Like, it would be pretty straightforward to do that. But sort of the ritual of acquiring the songs as MP3s, like putting them in an order in the thing and then burning that on a CD, putting it in a CD case with like a sleeve that has the song titles and everything it makes it different. It makes that experience fundamental. And then, you know, also taking the CDs they give me and sort of putting them into a CD player also changes what I'm doing, which I only do like the first couple times and then I'll just burn the CD uh, because my laptop doesn't actually have a CD player. Yeah. I have I have to use an external USB one and there's lag there and it's it's complicated and it's just it's so much more convenient to just already have the things on my computer but like the first couple of times at least the ritual of like getting it out setting up the like the CD player putting the CD in is a meaningful part of that experience. For me the only place I really like listen to CDs is in my car but as a result of that I have a bunch of old mix CDs that like I have a mix CD in my car that my sister made for me when I was 12, you know, like I yeah. probably would not be listening to that if that was just a playlist, right? I probably wouldn't be scrolling all the way back yeah. to my playlist and stuff like that. But sometimes I'll put that in the car and it's a really it's a really like heartwarming experience listening to a mix CD someone made you that long ago. We should do an episode on mix CDs. That would be a fun episode. Yeah. I think that's yeah. that's such a great example of how like like yeah, the medium of the mix CD 
And, you know, it's interesting because even the medium of before the mix CD, the medium of the mix tape where like I'm I'm not old enough that I ever really made mix tapes on tape. I made I'm definitely made a number of mix CDs and burning CDs. I I did that plenty, but mix tapes like in order to do that, often people needed to sit down like wait for a song to come on the radio and then just hold a microphone with their tape recorder <laughs> up to the radio and hear that. And that's such a, it, it it's such a, you know, labor of love. That's going to change how you yeah. listen to that CD. And yeah. yeah, like, or even like the tape to tape ones where you just, yes. you have to put, put in a tape that has the song you want, find the exact moment and then start transferring that to a blank tape. It's just still, there's so much effort and so much thought that goes in. Not thought. Yeah. There, there is thought. I, I don't want to imply that there's not thought to other things, but it's more active and it's more effort. And especially in those sorts of things that are very personal, that are not just about the actual technology, but are about the act of expression and about making something for someone. Part of that is fundamentally the amount of effort that goes into it. Yes. And if there's less effort, it feels... Let you know it, it, it's not a one to one thing, but part of what makes like a mixed CD or a mixtape or something so special is that it feels like someone put a lot of effort into it in a way that, like, you know, it, not just to the actual physical mechanism, but also to the curation. But because there's so much effort that goes into the physical part of it, the idea of putting more effort into curation, like, because if I wanted to, like, just send, like, I, I could just send Noah a link to a song. Like, that wouldn't be hard. I I could just be like, hey, check this out. I think you'd like it. And so the idea of putting everything together into a list, figuring out the runtime, everything like that, doesn't necessarily require that there then be physical effort. But like we were talking about earlier, I think the two incentivize each other. Yes. Listening to a song that somebody has put on that playlist as the listener, you know, or on that mix CD that somebody has made for you, it's going to it's going to hit different emotionally than yeah. if that song comes on the radio and the cool thing is you know maybe it can in the future like hit differently if you hear that song on the radio because it makes you think of that mix CD or you know often yeah. I'll hear a song on the radio that I have on vinyl and I'll hear that and I'll be like oh I want to go listen to that album you know I'm and then I go home and put that album on yeah. the different listening to music on different mediums informs your listening on other mediums um and it all kind of comes together to create yeah. this holistic musical experience and, and all of that also funnels into the live experience where like you know you go to a concert and you hear the opening like chords or the opening riff or whatever of a song that you have listened to 10,000 times on CD and you lose your goddamn mind yeah you know? <laughs> yeah exactly well I think that covers a lot of the bases that I laid out in the beginning. Yeah. Um, did you have any any more thoughts you wanted to get out? Uh, yeah. I, one last thing that I really wanted to emphasize, just in case anyone was confused about this point, I think it's really important if you have one takeaway. Um, you should listen to Steely Dan on cell phone speakers. Yes. Yes. Okay. You can okay, really I think pick up it. the I think nuances. That's everything. Yeah. I, all, all those nuances. Steely Dan sounds best when it's hollow and tinny and hyper compressed. Yeah, it's, it's what it was mixed for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I've said a couple times in this, like, I'm not, I'm not here to judge what you listen to your music on. I, I just want you to 
think about what you listen to your music on. And especially like, I really want to reiterate the, um, what we were talking about with the platforms like, like this doesn't mean don't stream and I stream lots, but it is, I think it's important to know that these platforms are very kind of designed and streamlined for you to listen to music in a very certain way. And often like I myself will through, through them, you know, find myself listening to things. I don't even really, you know, never even really thought of listening, never really conceptualized listening. And they, they, they're just kind of there. And, you know, it is what it is. Sometimes that's for the better, I guess. But it's it's a thing yeah. where your listening habits when you're listening on streaming stuff, there's a big tech company behind this that is distinctly pushing an agenda for how you listen. And yeah. I mean, there's also, you know, big companies behind radio and live venues and stuff like that. But it's just I really want to hammer it home with with streaming because I feel like streaming is so ubiquitous uh, right now. Yeah, I guess where I would come down is that like when especially when it comes to like music discovery and sort of music engagement, convenience is a double edged sword. Yes, but it does still have two edges, right? Like this, it's not just bad. Yes, a hundred percent. It's also yeah. there's also a lot of things that are really great about the level of. I mean, you know, like setting aside the question of whether it's destroying the ability for artists to make a living. Yeah, which I mean, yes, in a lot of ways, but. In, in just in terms of the artistic experience, divorcing that from the real world business concerns for a second, which are very real and very valid, just in terms of how you discover music, how you engage with music, there's a lot of good that can be that can come from just having all of this music at your fingertips. But again, it is also is designed very explicitly and very intentionally to encourage a very specific kind of musical listening, which, you know, yeah isn't a better or worse kind of musical listening, but it's a specific kind and it may not be the one that you intend to do every time you listen to music. And so it's something to be aware of, even if it's not something that necessarily leads to you changing your behavior in any way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and by the same measure, it is also also worth noting that like, not, not quite in the same way, but like turntables are designed to yeah. have you listen to music in a certain way as well, you know, like oh, that absolutely, kind of album yeah. every medium is. Yeah, exactly, absolutely, yeah. Abs anything that you're you're listening to, um, someone has designed it to do something, to sound some way, to change your music experience one way or another, and yeah, so that's the episode. Yeah. I think I I I think we can yeah. just keep reiterating the same stuff as always, but yeah, yeah. I do have some questions about Bob Dylan, though. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't, time, didn't even no. bring it. Well, let me tell you about it. Se sequencing Bob Dylan on vinyl. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. This is something that, like I mentioned, kind of the, the genesis for this thought spun out of something that I wrote in my newsletter this month. So if you want to if you want to uh, check out my newsletter, newsletters.nebulapolyphonic. I don't know the link. Just search Polyphonic like Newsletter Nebula. It'll be in the yeah. description, maybe. It'll come up. If I remember to put it, we'll see. <laughs> but but yeah, that's just something I want to... We don't usually do usually do plugs at the end, but uh, I'm really proud of some of the stuff yeah. I've been doing with my newsletter, and you should read it, because a lot of the stuff I'm doing on my newsletter is kind of exploring Ghost Notes-esque sort of thoughts about music. Yeah. 
Yeah, and while we're plugging, like outside of my YouTube channel, I did want to mention I have a podcast. It's called Ghost Notes. Uh, I run it with my friend Noah, who who makes Polyphonic, uh, which you might be familiar with. Uh, if if that sounds it. interesting, I would really recommend checking it out. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. On, on iPhone speakers, yeah, all, obviously. You'd better have been listening to this whole podcast on phone speakers. Otherwise, go back yeah. and start again. Or on vinyl. Yeah, you, you missed all of the nuances. <laughs> I want if you. I want you to download this file and cut it onto two records and listen to it on vinyl yeah. and send me a video. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.